We will be reading from Esther chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, and Esther chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand, and those upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace, his reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed uh, the 10 sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. And you can uh, flip over to Esther chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might, together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king had raised him. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the king of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people 
and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray this morning that above all the things your name would be made much of, that you would be glorified, that we would, in looking at this specific section, this specific portion of revelation of who you are, that we would come to rejoice, to worship you for the intensity with which you uphold holiness and your holiness that we would celebrate your holiness knowing that we are unholy and then rejoice all the more that you have not left us in unholiness, that you have raised us up and restored us through your son, Jesus Christ, that we can be with you again. Speak to us this morning. Soften our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're coming into land, right? We're... If you've been here since the beginning of the summer, we're at, we've been moving through Esther. We're at chapter 9 out of 10, and there's only three verses in chapter 10. And so we're very close to the end now. And it's been ramping up. If you've, if you've been here, it gets super intense as we move near the end. These last few weeks, we've had hangings. We've had multiple banquets because those seem to be very important within the progression of the narrative. We've had ordered genocides. We've had uh, sort of the chance to fight against those genocides. It's been very intense in these last pages. And chapter 9, in many ways, is the pinnacle of this moment. This is, this is huge. This is, we've gone last week. Matt talked about the, the second edict coming in and the reversal that happens there. We heard about what happened to Haman and he gets hanged and now it goes broad strokes and we see the victory of the Jewish people across the entire empire of Persia and it's massive. It's like Les Mis with a way better ending, right? It's just incredible. Everything turns. We go from the worst doom imaginable, this genocide hanging over top of them and no chance to fight against, to suddenly the ability to take up arms. Suddenly they have representatives in government that will stand and represent them. We have Queen Esther who had hidden her Jewishness suddenly comes forward and says, I am a Jew, and suddenly they have that in place. We see Mordecai raised to second in command to the king. So the Jews have that. And then we also see, we see it in verse 3, we see that all of the government officials throughout all the provinces are suddenly supporting them too. And isn't that convenient that suddenly when the queen is Jewish, they're like, oh, we love the Jews. But the Jews go from having nothing to everything in their favor. God just gives it to them. But at the same time, we see the reality that God doesn't wipe all their enemies out for them. There's also the expectation that they take up arms and they defend themselves. And we see the result of that. No one could stand against them. So there's this sort of two side where God gives them the victory, but they do have to walk in it. However, as we near this and as as Christians and I confess myself I'm tempted at this moment to just sing victory in Jesus my savior forever translate this to the spiritual victory and then just go home we have to deal with what is what I'm going to call the big hairy elephant in the room 
And that is that this victory that we're apparently supposed to celebrate and that apparently God has empowered his people to achieve stands on the bodies of 75,800 people. And at the very least, if you are not a Christian, that is deeply unsettling and we're not good with that. It seems to stand in opposition to everything that the New Testament says. Jesus says, love your enemies. And here we have God empowering his people to slaughter. It says, turn the other cheek. That's not happening here. We've got three verses listing the names of the ten sons of Haman, saying every single one died. And then Queen Esther asks for another day. shouldn't be good with that. And that's what we're going to talk about is this. We can't just transplant this and say, okay, God gives them victory. God gives us victory in Jesus. So it's good. You can't. We can't jump the body count when we look at this passage. And so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about holy war in the scriptures. And we're going to talk about how military conflict that is sanctioned by God fits within the narrative of Scripture and how we get from 75,000 dead in the provinces of Persia to love your enemies, how that's okay. And basically, we've got, we've got four points. Technically, there's five in this, and that ends in Revelation at the very end, but we just it's awesome, but we, it's for another day. But the four points basically move like this. The first stage is we see in the early portions of the Old Testament, we see that God fights for his people to preserve their holiness. In the second stage, we see that God fights against his people to declare his holiness. And then we see in the, in the prophets and, and in Esther here, Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that God promises a future restoration to holiness. And then lastly, we see that God sends Jesus Christ, the divine warrior, to fight sin and death, the true enemies of holiness. There's this trajectory. It's not a static fact. And so we're going to move that, move through that today. The first section, God fights for his people. In the early stages of the Old Testament, God identifies the Jews as his chosen people. And one of the things that he's adamant about, that he communicates over and over and over again, is that they are to be holy. They are to be set apart from all the other nations of the world. And the specific indicator of this is that they worship God and God alone, no other God. That's the expectation. We see this, this communicated, uh, Deuteronomy covers it well. And Moses is addressing the people before they go into the promised land. And he says this, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He then go on, he goes on to communicate, just in case they're prideful, says, It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest. It just humbles them a little bit. But this emphasis at the beginning is that holiness is 
a primary purpose of God's people. They need to be holy as God is holy. They need to only worship Him. And coupled with this this passage in Deuteronomy is the marching orders that they get when they move into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, which is effectively a list of peoples that they are to destroy in military conflict. It says, 7 verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And so coupled with this, you are to be holy because God has chosen you to be holy is, and you're going to go into these nations, into the promised land, and you're going to devote them to destruction. And the reason that God says that is because he says that these other nations are unholy. They do not worship the true God. They do not worship me. And if you mingle with them, it says specifically, if, you're, if, you're, if you allow your sons to marry their daughters and their daughters to marry your sons, they will turn your hearts away from me. They will make you unholy. And so God says, you need to clear them out. And I'm going to empower you to do this. And so the first thing that we see there, and this is the difficult thing is, this is not a pleasant fact. And it doesn't sit well, even in, in, in many of us who are Christians. This is why oftentimes we stray away from the Old Testament, because it is violent. But what's being communicated from the very beginning is, holiness is so important to God that military action is not too severe of a response to anything that would threaten it. Doesn't mean it's the best response. Doesn't mean it fixes everything. But God is making it clear that holiness is very important. And that military is is a way that that gets pursued. It's not too intense. Holiness trumps human life in this moment. That's hard. But that is the truth of the scriptures in this moment. That's what we see. So God empowers them to fight. And they win. Then we move to the second stage where God fights against his people to declare his holiness. Because what happens is the sword cuts both ways. God is holy and his people need to be holy in order for him to tolerate them, in order for him to, to be in community with them. And they drift, they disobey, they, they don't clear out the people as they were empowered to do. They turn to other gods, they worship false gods time and time again. And there's this whole period of scripture where they keep falling away and God brings them back and they're falling away and God redeems them over and over again. But he's warning them. He's saying, you can't keep doing this. I am holy. You must be holy. And I am empowering you to do that. But if you will not, there will be consequences to this. And ultimately, that's where they land. And we see this in the book of Jeremiah. summarizes it well. Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 3, it sort of prefaces it, it says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them. 
Then you jump ahead to verse 7. It says, And I brought you into a plentiful land, the promised land, to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed. The prophets prophesied by Baal, a different God, and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, verse 9, I still contend with you declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. Contend means fight. I will be against you, is what God says. Because God's holiness, there's no bias. His people must be holy as well. And they aren't. And they disobey time and time again. And God ultimately says, I will contend with you. He fights against them and he says, he calls other nations to take them into exile and then they lose every battle. They lose, they get destroyed. Jerusalem is laid waste and they're taken into exile. That is the result of their disobedience. And again, physical warfare is used as God's tool in this to demonstrate his holiness. He's saying, you can't, do this. And here, it could have stopped at this point. Israel's people had disobeyed time and time and time again. They had been given so many chances. And maybe we can see some parallels in our own lives. God could have just said, all right. Now, he had promised he wouldn't flood the world again, but I'm sure he could have thought of something else. It could have been that. But what happens next is he says, I'm not going to stay there. I'm not going to leave you there. God promises future restoration for holiness. And there's this whole section. Many of the, the prophets within Scripture are pointing towards a restoration to holiness, something that would fix the issue of Israel's unholiness and disobedience. And simultaneously prophesying a time when it would expand to not just be Israel. And this comes to fruition in the New Testament when it, because we're not all Jews in here. The church is not 100% Jews. It's expanded to beyond that. God promises future restoration. He doesn't abandon his people. And what we see throughout this whole section, and Esther included, and this is the lens that we need to have when we look at Esther, is that we're seeing small pictures, small victories that are symbols and, and rumors of greater victories to come. They're like, they're like engagement rings, right? Because you propose, men, you propose, and you say, will you marry me? And God willing, she says, yes, and that's very exciting, but then you don't, generally, you don't get, a marry, get married immediately. You may have a party to celebrate. You're like, yeah, it's exciting, but it's, the engagement is a small thing that foretells a future bigger thing. And in fact, it would lose its value if the, if the wedding would not follow after. And that's what we see here is we see all these small things. In the book of Hosea, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's these small victories, these small restorations that are pointing to a bigger one to come. And so when we look at Esther, that's the lens that we are to have. This is the point in history. The nature of things has changed where it's looking towards a future reconciliation. 
And so when we look at Esther, here's the thing. We have this beautiful victory. And we've, we've talked about it. We've seen all the lead up to it. And Israel wins and it's awesome. But what's important is, is this. It's easy to see it as just Israel's victory provided by God over their external circumstances. There is external oppression. We see Persia. We see Haman as the enemies of the Jews. And so this moment, this chapter 9 and the chapters uh, preceding and, and following it, is just their victory over external circumstances. But it's more than that. It's more than that. What it ties back to is this. We need to see that It's not simply a victory of God's people over their external circumstances, but about God delivering them from the consequences of a past disobedience. If you were here uh, back in July 10th, we talked about Haman the Agagite, and we connected it back to this moment in 1 Samuel. Haman is the descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites, of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are, are tied to this spe- specific moment in Israel's history where the first king, King Saul, was ordered to wipe out a specific nation as part of these early stages of fighting for holiness. Of You need to cast this, this nation out. And so God gives the command. He says, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have the nation of Amalek, the Amalekites. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is that same. That same is the command that happens in Deuteronomy. Wipe them out. But Saul does not obey. Saul fails in this. He wins the victory, but A, he doesn't kill the king. He leaves the king alive and the king's family. And he takes plunder. They don't destroy everything as they're supposed to. It says that they, they destroy the bad things, the sickly cattle and the, the, the bad jewelry, but they keep the good things. And God says, you have disobeyed through his prophet Samuel, and in that moment turns his back on Saul. And then we start the progression towards uh, him losing authority as king and moving to King David. And this disobedience triggers... Haman, because if Saul had have followed through, that nation would have ended. Haman doesn't show up if Saul obeys. And so the very fact that Haman exists is rooted in a prior disobedience on the part of Israel. Maybe that feels like a stretch. I'll show you. There's two parallels that exist in there that show the way that this is a a restoration. There's a a return to obedience by Israel. There's two specific things. The first is, you'll notice, again, lists the name of every single one of Haman's sons. Seems like overkill. Seems like revenge. Seems like a not-Christian thing to do. It is now. (laughs) Nature has changed. But in that moment... They're doing and following in obedience what King Saul did not do. That's obedience come full circle. They're doing what they were called upon to do. And the second thing is, you might have noticed, three times in that passage it says, but they took no share of the plunder. And you're like, well, they're a little defensive about that, but like, we didn't take anything. 
You're like, all right, sure. But if you look back at the second edict, it actually says they have permission. It says they can take plunder from any that they defeat. So what's the deal? It's because this is a restoration. This is a return to obedience to this passage in 1 Samuel 15. They're commanded to take no plunder, and Saul didn't obey. They took plunder, and now we come full circle to this moment. And the heir of Agag of the Amalekites is wiped out, and they take no plunder. And so we see this is a picture of a return to obedience and God delivering them from the consequences of that past disobedience. But, but, we're in this section of Scripture where it's not just uh, separate events. It's not, they're, they're not mm, independent. They represent something to come. It's not a metaphor. It's real. It's a real moment, but it points to a bigger thing that's to come. And that bigger thing that's to come hinges on what this doesn't address. Because what doesn't get addressed in Esther 9, well, the consequences of their disobedience get dealt with, the root of their disobedience is left utterly untended to. Because why do they disobey? It's not because the Amalekites were there. It's not because these other nations were involved in peer pressuring them into not following through with God. It's because their hearts... We're not obedient to God. The problem is internal, and that's what the whole sweep of Scripture shows, that what has been, it tries to get dealt with in physical terms, but it's a spiritual reality, and it needs more attention. It can't be dealt with with just physical warfare. It needs spiritual warfare. And so while in this passage we see consequences get dealt with, the roots left untended. It's like clipping the leaves off a weed and leave the root. It comes back every time. That's what the whole Old Testament and what our whole lives are. We make deal with the circumstances, we deal with the consequences of things that we do wrong, but the root keeps coming back. We keep doing the wrong thing. And so then the promise comes. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 says, as a promise... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The prophecy is I'm going to deal with the root of it. God says, we've... We've done physical things. We're just treating symptoms. We're going to treat the disease. It's going to come. And in that moment, as this prophecy, when it comes to fruition, we see the shift of what God's war against unholiness, which the whole Bible is a testament to, shifts from a physical war against unholy people to a spiritual war against the sin that is in our hearts. And then we get to the final point. Oh, I got blanks to fill in, sorry. The victory of the Jews over the consequences of their past disobedience announces Jesus' victory over both the consequences and cause 
of all disobedience. Section four. God sends Jesus Christ, the divine warrior, to fight sin and death, the true enemy of of holiness. Jesus comes, and often the perspective is, well, the Old Testament's really violent and uncomfortable. The New Testament seems a lot nicer. I would put it to us all that the New Testament is just as violent, it's just spiritually violent. Jesus comes, and he does not wage war against Rome, who holds the Jews in captivity. And a good many Jews were disappointed that he did not, that he did not lead them in a glorious rebellion against their Roman captors. But Jesus had a bigger plan in mind because he knew that the Romans were nothing compared to the real captors, the sin and disobedience that controlled their hearts and control our hearts. And so Jesus comes and he wages war over his entire life day by day against sin and lives a perfect life. Every day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, stands in defiance of unholiness and lives a perfect holy life. And then he gets to the end and he dies perfect. And all of our sin in this magnificently mystical moment is put on him and paid for. And he comes back to life. And in that, not only is the penalty, the consequences of our sin dealt with, but the root cause of it is dealt with. And that prophecy, Ezekiel 36, comes to fruition with the resurrection of Christ that we can be given new hearts. And this is the big moment. It's bigger than the victory of Esther 9. And it's what the victory of Esther 9 points to. Not just the victory over a moment's consequence for a moment's disobedience, but of ripping our hearts of stone out and putting new hearts that love God in. That's the beauty of that moment. Because the Jews, like the Jews in Esther 9, they go from the first edict where they're just sitting under the doom that is to come. Even if they fight, as soon as they fight, they're traitors to the crown and they will be hunted to death. There is no victory. They have no ally. They have no hope. And we, outside of Christ, are lost in sin and cannot do what is right. We may do external things, but our motives betray us. We will not do things in worship for God in worship to God outside of the regenerating power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And then, like the Jews, the second edict comes. And it is Jesus Christ has come and he has laid low death and freed us to fight against our sin. He has won the war that we may wage a battle. In the same way that the Israelites... God gives them everything they need for victory and says, all right, now pick up your swords and go. You have it, just take it. That's our story. And so then when we land on application here as we move through, this is where holy war doesn't end, it just its nature changes forever. Holy war never after the life of Jesus is against people. It's against spiritual forces. We look at Ephesians six twelve, and it says it so well. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the holy war that we have in front of us. This is the one that our captain Christ has won the great victory in, and this is the one that day by day we must take up our sword and put on our armor and fight. Our story is like the beautiful verse in, uh, I believe it was John Wesley wrote a hymn and it was called, Then Should It Be That I Should Gain. And there's a verse in that that says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin. We're in prison to our sin. And my eye received a quickening ray of light, Jesus Christ. And I woke and the dungeon blazed with light and my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, stood forth and followed thee. So as we look at Esther, we look at the victory that God gives them over their disobedience. In that little moment, what we get is bigger. We get new hearts that can fight, that can stand. And so if you're not looking to Jesus on a daily basis for your salvation. If you don't believe, the simple truth that I can say is out of this is that our belief is that that is where you are in darkness, in sin, in a dungeon and incapable of escape. And the only reason that anyone is different is because of the grace of God. And what Jesus Christ has done, not because we were better, not because we've done anything special with our lives. And we believe that you and anyone need only look to Jesus Christ and salvation is there. He will give you the sword to fight against your sin and he has won the battle that needed to be won that we could not win. If you're a Christian, and you hear this, and you resonate more with a man in prison than a man in freedom. As happens, we don't win every single day. We fall, we stumble. And some days it seems we stumble day after day after day to the same enemy laying us low. And I needed to hear this as I, as I studied it and as I looked at it. There's two things we have to know. The first is we need to see the foolishness of turning to our sin. It may seem like it's beyond our self-control, but as we turn to it, that is, the picture of that is as one who has been given a sword and armor to fight against a foe who has won freedom and now throws their sword away, throws their armor away, turns around and looks at their enemy and says, I, they weren't that bad. Let's go back. It's... The Bible has harsher words. The Bible says, as a, as a dog returns to its vomit, does a fool return to its folly? That's what we do. There's conviction there. It's just like the Israelites turned from God time and time and time again. Return to their disobedience. We return to our disobedience. God gives us new hearts. We can turn. The sword is there. Scripture is no less sharp, even though we haven't picked it up in a while. Pick it up sword of the spirit and the good news is that God's grace is still there we may have 
committed our life to Christ years and years ago and then lived in sin for years since then. But we can turn. He does not grow weary of us. He has saved us and he will complete the work. We need to only turn and take up the word again and look to him again. Lastly, if you are a Christian today walking under the deathless blue sky that Christ has won for us. We have only two things to do. The first is to every day take up the sword of the Spirit, to put on the armor of God, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, belt of truth, shoes of peace, helmet of salvation, and to make war against our sin to fight the fight that we have been given the ability to fight every day. That's what we get caught in sometimes. We think it should be easy. But sin doesn't go down easy. So we need to fight. Just as the Jews do, as we see them in Esther. The other thing we have to do is be telling others that there is freedom. Those that are still trapped, that are still in the dungeon, say there is freedom. There is hope. There is a captain that has led us to victory and you need only walk in it. And that's the good news. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you have won the victory for us. Thank you that you did not stop when we showed ourselves to be so disobedient, to be so unholy, that you did not leave us there, but that you stepped into history to fight the war for us that we could not fight so that we could worship you, so that we could fight our sin, so that we could live in freedom and in relationship with you. And thank you that though we forget it often, too often, we forget that you are better than any of our sins. Thank you that you are, that you will satisfy us if we turn, that you will free us if we turn, help us to turn. Help us to fight our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.